Chapter 8 of Italian Life and Legends by Anna Cora Mowat Ritchie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 8 Feuds Between the Bianchi and the Neri. There is nothing more remarkable in Florentine history than the endless feuds between the nobles and the people or the nobles and one another, which for centuries distracted the commonwealth and occasioned not merely the loss of individual life and property and the demolition of so many stately palaces and other superb buildings, but culminated in fierce and protracted wars. And there is, perhaps, nothing in Florentine history more singular than the trivial first causes which gave rise to those battle-generating feuds. T. A. Trollope, whose indefatigable researches have enabled him to produce the most complete history of the Florentine commonwealth which has ever been written, says these divisions must be attributed to some underlying cause of longer and deeper significance than any to which they are attributed. A match falling into a powder barrel is in one sense the cause of an all-widespread ruin that follows. But the destructive force which has been put into activity has been previously prepared and stored up, without which the accidental match would have been harmless. Yet it is of interest to trace the often trivial circumstances which lighted the ready match and caused the explosion. One of the most bloody encounters between the Florentines and their rivals, the Pisans, owed its origin to a lapdog. The story runs thus. When the Emperor Frederick II was crowned in Rome, the 2nd of March, 1220, all the Italian cities sent ambassadors to do honor to His Majesty. Between Florence and Pisa there always existed a bitter jealousy. As a matter of course, the rival cities selected men of the highest position in their community and the ones most fitted to grace a royal festival. A Roman cardinal gave a dinner to the Florentine ambassadors and another to the Pisans. The banquet to the Florentines took place first. The cardinal had a lapdog of rare beauty which gambled around the feet of the ambassadors and won great admiration. One of the Florentine representatives was so much charmed that his eminence presented him the little favorite and begged that he would send for it whenever he pleased. The next day, the Pisan ambassadors dined with the cardinal. The dog had not yet been claimed by the Florentine ambassador, and again he sported about the guest, and was caressed and admired as before. It was an odd coincidence that one of the Pisan ambassadors conceived such a fancy for the dog that he begged the cardinal to bestow it upon him. The cardinal, quite forgetting his impromptu gift to the noble Florentine, very courteously told the Pisan to consider the dog his own. A little later, a messenger came from the Florentine ambassador to claim the dog, 
and it was promptly delivered. When the Pisan ambassador's messenger arrived for the same purpose, the dog was gone. The Pisan was so greatly enraged and insisted that the dog was his by right and should be yielded up to him. The Florentine refused to relinquish the highly valued pet. The ambassadors met in the streets of Rome, and an angry argument ensued. They did not hesitate to insult one another grossly, and furious words were followed by furious blows. A regular street fray was the sequence. The Pisans came off the victors, for the Pisan ambassadors were accompanied by fifty Pisan soldiers. All the Florentines in Rome at once assembled and attacked the Pisans, and in the second contest, the battle appears to have ended in the favor of the Florentines. When the news of this dissension reached Pisa, the government of that city immediately took possession of all the merchandise in Pisa, which belonged to Florentine citizens. The Florentines made every effort to have their property restored without extending the quarrel farther. But the Pisans were deaf to all offers of reconciliation and refused to give up the goods, of which there was a very large quantity, waiting to be imported in Pisan ships. The patience of the Florentines became exhausted, and they marched out and gave battle to the obstinate Pisans. The encounter lasted the whole day. Many lives were lost. The Pisans were wholly defeated, and the Florentines marched back with 1,300 prisoners, among who were numerous members of first families in Pisa. Query. Had the cardinal's pretty lapdog never existed, or had it been less attractive, or had the cardinal been less liberally careless in his donations, would the terrible day's fighting ever have occurred? Would those heaps of dead have been left on the plains of the Castel de Bosco? And would those 1,300 prisoners have been carried in triumph to Florence? In the Florentine feuds, we narrated the thrilling story of the handsome but inconsequent young Juan de la Monte and the origin of the terrible Guelph and Ghibelline feud. That protracted and bloody strife had nominally ended when it was succeeded by the feud between the Bianche White Party and the Neri Black Party, which in the commencement of the 14th century grew out of the gambles of two children. The children were cousins. Their mothers were the daughters of the same father, though by different wives. They belonged to the most wealthy and powerful family of the Pistora, the Cancellari. Each sister boasted of more than a hundred retainers. The name of one sister was Bianca, hence her descendants are called Cancellari Bianchi. The offspring of the other sister, for distinction's sake, are called Cancellari Neri. In Italy, the maiden name is always retained, and that of the husband is often made to precede instead of following the lady's family name. Young Lore, the son of 
Guillermo de Cancellere Neri, while playing with his cousin, the son of Betuca de Cancellere Bianchi, accidentally inflicted a serious wound. The father of Lore was much distressed when he heard of this chance injury, and at once sent Lore to the father of the wounded boy to express his contrition and to beg forgiveness of both father and son. Lore's apologies and explanations were fiercely interrupted by his inhuman uncle, who cried out, Boy, you were not prudent in showing your face here, neither was your father wise in sending you. He then turned to a servant and bade him summon the cook and order him to bring his cleaver. When the latter appeared, his master pointed to the affrighted Lore, and then to the horse trough near, and commanded the servants to hold the child while the cook struck off his right hand, the hand which had injured his cousin upon the horse trough. The cook and the servants did not dare to disobey, and the child's hand was quickly severed. His uncle savagely seized the fallen member, and, placing it in the boy's other hand, said, Take that to thy father from me. The Nere, maddened by a deed so cowardly and so cruel, summoned retainers and friends, flew to arms, and attacked the Bianchi. The citizens joined in the fray, some taking sides with one party, some with the other. The chiefs of the two parties were exiled from Pistora and sent to Florence. There the Bianchi were received by the Cerci, and the Neri by the Donati and Frescobaldi families. The more aristocratic portion of the community sided with the Neri, and the Guelph populace supported the Bianchi, a most bloody warfare in which all the distinguished men of that age took part, broke out, and gave birth to numberless acts of inconceivable barbarity. The great Dante upheld the Bianchi. Between the Cerci and Donati families, who had ranged themselves, the one on the side of the Bianchi, the other of the Neri, a most irreconcilable feud existed. The Cerci were very opulent merchants, the Donati impoverished nobles. Unfortunately, they were neighbors. The Cerci had purchased one of the most magnificent old palaces which had belonged to the Guidi. Nearby resided the Donati in a more humble mansion. The Cerci made a prodigal display of their wealth. They kept many servants, horses, and equipages. The young men, awkward and plebeian, though some handsome and intelligent, dressed with surpassing splendor. Corso, the head of the Donati family, openly ridiculed the manners, bearing, and low-bred ostentation of his Parnouveau neighbor. He nicknamed Verdi de Cerci, the donkey of the ward, and, when Verdi was to speak in council, would ask if the donkey had brayed that day. The historian Dino Campagni says of Corso Donati, He was of noble race, 
handsome in person, a good speaker, of elegant manners, and of subtle intelligence, allied to a heart always intent on evil. He and his band committed many deeds of arson and robbery in the city. On account of his arrogance, he was nicknamed the Baron. Dante married Gemma, a member of this Donati family, and in his youth, strange to say, was much attached to the fierce, unscrupulous Baron. In after years they became deadly foes, and Corso Donati was one of the most powerful instruments in promoting Dante's banishment from Florence, in procuring a decree for the confiscation of his property, and in sentencing him to be burned at the stake if he ever fell into the hands of the Florentine government. It was almost impossible for members of the Donati and Cerci families to meet without fighting. One day they were both at the funeral of a lady of the Frescobaldi family. The nobles had the privilege of sitting upon benches, all others sat on reed mats. The Cerci and Donati found themselves placed opposite to each other. The treasureless Donati upon the seats of honor, and the opulent Cerci on the ground almost at their feet. This position galled the one party, and rendered the other insolently exultant. They watched each other's movements with angry eyes. During the ceremony, one of the Cerci rose from his seat, it is said, merely to adjust the folds of his dress beneath him. The Donati imagined that he had started up to commit some violence. They all rose in haste, drew their swords, and, regardless of the sacred place, which was over the corpse lying before the altar, and the priest performing the funeral rites, the two parties rushed furiously upon each other and were with difficulty separated. In that same year, 1300, they had another encounter, which ended more disastrously. On the evening of the first day of the annual May festivities, a party of ladies were dancing on the Piazza di Santa Trinita, surrounded by an admiring crowd. Among the lookers-on were a group of the young Cerci and their friends, mounted on their horses. Soon the Donati, also mounted, joined the crowd and pressed forward to obtain a view of the dancers. Accidentally, the two parties pushed each other. In a moment, swords flashed from their scabbards. The dance was broken up. The terrified ladies fled, shrieking to their homes. The piazza, which a moment before had echoed to gay music, now resounded with a clash of arms and the trampling of horses' hooves and the cries of the charging foes. Furious combatants met where the feet of fair women had so lately glided through the graceful measure. Riot and confusion usurped the place of gaiety and gallantry. One of the Cerci had his nose cut off by a Donate saber. When the fight ended, a new element of hatred and a stronger thirst for revenge had been infused into the minds of the adversaries. On Christmas Day of the same year, two members of the opposing families came again into collision. 
a holy friar was preaching on the piazza in front of the church Santa Croce. Simone Donati formed one of the listening crowd. Niccolo de Cerci came riding by alone on his way to a villa without the city. Simone, at the sight of a Cerci unprotected, turned from the pious exhortation of the good friar, spurred his horse, and came up with his unguarded foe outside the city walls, attacked him unexpectedly, and murdered him on the spot. But Nicola, as he fell from his horse, struck at Simon, and inflicted a wound from his dagger. Simon died the next day. This Simon was a son of Messer Corso Donati, the Baron, who became very celebrated in Florentine history. We constantly see him at the head of the party disturbing the public peace and committing all manner of outrages. His cruelty seems to have extended itself alike to men and women, as his treatment of his beautiful sister, Picarda, illustrates. In spite of her opposition, he promised her hand to Rosalino della Tosca. To avoid this hateful union, she fled during her brother's absence to the convent of St. Clair and took vows of a nun. When Corso Donati heard this news, he hastened to Florence, assembled twelve ruffians, and with them scaled the walls of the convent, seized his sister, and, regardless of the holy vow she had made, gave her to Rosalino della Tosca. But she was soon rescued from a merciless brother and a pitiless husband. The horror of her situation and the terrible scenes through which she had passed snapped the cord which bound her to a life of despair. She only survived her union a few days. Corso Donati's end was a fitting termination to his turbulent and lawless career. In 1308, he was suspected of conspiring to become a despotic master of the commonwealth. He was declared guilty by the Podesta and condemned to death. But he and his allies strongly barricaded the streets adjacent to his house and gave battle to the party who came to seize him. While defending the barricade in front, he was attacked in the rear. But he succeeded in cutting his way through the enemy and, with a few trusty friends, reached Rovizzano, a villa three miles away from the city. There he was overtaken, disarmed, and finally captured. He was resolved not to be carried into the city alive, to be subjected to the scoffs of the rabble, and be consigned to the hands of the executioner. He tried to bribe his captors to kill him, but in vain. There was no means of self-destruction within his reach, and his bodily exertions had brought on a sudden and violent attack of gout in the feet and hands. He was now within one mile of the city, and desperate. Suddenly he threw himself from his horse to the ground. The soldier who was guarding him imagined that he was making an attempt to escape and pinned him to the earth with his lance. Thus Donati's stratagem succeeded, and he never more entered the walls of Florence. The soldiers left his body in the road. The monks of St. Salvi found it the next day and buried it in their cemetery. End of chapter 8